You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. The most important regular season college basketball games are being played right now. And if you follow the Big Ten, some of the nation's most famous arenas will serve as the backdrop for these games. Which Big Ten arenas really stand out? We'll visit with former University of Illinois Sports Information Director Mike Pearson, who recently completed a tour of every facility in the league and wrote an article about it. There's some controversy between the hedges at the University of Georgia's Sanford Stadium. A new upgrade will cost $64 million, but some fans feel they're being left out. We'll dig into that story with Bill King. We'll visit the land of the Giants. It's the Polo Grounds, where the old New York Giants played. Stu Thornley wrote the book on it. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran tells us what happens when two billionaires get together over lunch to discuss stadiums. But first, the stadiums beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, a CBS News report indicates birds are dying at an alarming rate flying into the new glassy stadium of the Minnesota Vikings. It is believed that nearly 500 birds per year die from crashing into the outer walls of U.S. Bank Stadium. Environmentalists had expressed concerns when the stadium was being built that birds migrating near the Mississippi River would only see blue sky reflecting off the stadium and fly directly into it. The groups are pressuring the Vikings to alter the outer design of the venue. U.S. Bank Stadium is the site of next year's Super Bowl. A new survey of registered voters in Arizona indicates strong opposition to using public monies to finance a new hockey arena for the Arizona Coyotes. Statewide, 68% say they are against the plan. Legislators are considering a plan that would create a pool of money for venues that would also help the Phoenix Suns and Arizona Diamondbacks, who are not happy with their respective lease deals. Construction officials in Hartford, Connecticut say Dunkin' Donuts Park, the new home of the Hartford Yard Goats, will be ready to go for opening day. The new park has turned into a major headache for local officials. It was originally slated to open last year, but construction delays forced the team to play a number of road games and alternative home games. The Yard Goats are the AA affiliate of the Colorado Rockies. University of Wisconsin officials have kicked off celebrations that will recognize 100 years of iconic Camp Randall Stadium. Part of that celebration includes a future unveiling of the Camp Randall 100, a list of individuals who helped shape the first century of the stadium. And who says it never rains in Southern California? Earlier this week, heavy rains flooded Petco Park, the home of the San Diego Padres. A team spokesman said water was coming into the park so quickly that the drainage system wasn't able to withstand the flooding. The field, usually covered by green grass, was actually without grass at the time as a Monster Jam motorsport event was scheduled at the ballpark. Grounds officials say the field will be ready to go in time for the Padres home opener. 
Bill, that's the very latest. Thanks, Jeff. Well, we're going to see some changes at the home of the dogs, one of America's most beautiful college football stadium, Sanford Stadium in Athens, Georgia, and that is the home of the University of Georgia Bulldogs. And it looks like it's going to get a makeover, about $63 million worth, and we're going to find out just how far that goes and how far it doesn't go, how much it will impact the game day experience. We're going to visit with a guy who knows the Bulldogs well, Bill King, writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He also can be read as the editor of Dog Nation, the online blog detailing everything about the Bulldogs. Bill, let's talk about the changes to the stadium. This is a magnificent facility, but in a sense, it's just been patchwork grown, if you will, from one size to another size. It's ended up as a beautiful facility, but if you look deep enough inside, you can kind of tell some of that, can't you? Yeah, you can. It has grown uh, in phases over the years, uh, from originally, uh, you know, seating like, I don't know, 30, 35,000, then to 50,000, then to 78,000, then in the 80s, and now it seats just under 93,000. And naturally, not every part of the stadium is, you know, brand new. Uh, some of them, in fact, are are quite crowded and congested. And it's become something of a, a sore spot with some of the fans that some of the restrooms are very antiquated and overwhelmed. The concourses can be dangerously congested. The lines for water and concessions are ridiculously long. You can miss the better part of a quarter of a game going to try and get a drink. Wow. Uh, so when recently they, they announced that uh, they were redoing the west end of the stadium, and part of that was to build a new locker room for the team and a hospitality lounge recruits. It will include uh, more restrooms in that end for fans and a larger video board and a new plaza. What sort of upset a lot of fans who don't sit in that end is that it doesn't do anything for them. And some of their complaints, particularly about the restrooms and the concessions, are longstanding. And uh, they've got a little ticked off, I think, with the emphasis on these $63 million enhancement of the stadium being financed primarily by fan contributions. And they're basically feeling a little bit taken for granted that, yeah, you want my money, but, you know, you won't give me, you know, decent restrooms and, and concessions. And I think maybe the the uh, administration, the athletic administration at UGA didn't quite realize uh, what a hot button issue this was until it came up recently, and now they've been, you know, scrambling to try and say yes, we hear you, and you know, we are trying to do better. You know, a lot of stadiums, and I think particularly of McLean Stadium at Baylor University, uh, they have made a very strong effort to focus on features uh, that are impressive to recruits. Is that the way it's worked out at Georgia? I think that's part of it. Yeah, uh, the new uh, expansion and including to, in addition to the lounge for recruits is going to include a a new special seating area uh, in the center of what up to now has been student seating in in that end zone. And special seating area will be just for recruits. So, yes, Mm -hmm. I think that that is, and and naturally, I mean, Georgia also just opened an indoor practice facility, which for years, Georgia and Florida were the only SEC schools that did not have one. And frankly, there were only a handful of days during the football season when it was an issue when weather might interfere with practice. But 
these things became a selling point. Recruits show them your your fancy schmancy you know new facilities and and they're impressed by that. So, you know Georgia has built a state of the art. It's probably the nicest in the country indoor practice facility that just opened. You know and and yes. So I think you know trying to to impress recruits drove that. And I think it's the initial driving force behind these these West End improvements at Sanford Stadium. Take us inside Sanford Stadium and the experience on a typical game day, Bill. What's it like? It uh, particularly for a big game, it's it's an electric atmosphere. Uh, it's it like I said, it's a very loyal uh, fan base. Uh, and uh, I sit on the north side, where a few years ago they they sort of incorporated. There used to be an alley behind the stadium there between the stadium and a, and a dorm called Reed Hall, where my son actually lived here in school. And they uh, basically incorporated that alley into the stadium as a plaza. And that's really nice. I mean, and they've got, you know, very nice restrooms there and, and a lot of concession stands and just a lot of area for fans to congregate. Sanford is open at one end, so it's not quite as loud as some stadiums because the sound isn't contained. But when the opponent is big enough and the game is, is uh, really exciting, it can be as loud as any stadium, you know, uh, I think in the country. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been to games where, you know, you literally had to stick your fingers in your ears because the roar had just gotten so loud. And, and that's, that's, you know, an electric atmosphere. That's fun. Yeah, it's an incredible experience. It sure sounds like it, Bill. That's one place that I haven't been, but I'll tell you, I've heard so many good things about uh, everything going on between the hedges, and I want to thank you for sharing it with us. Bill, we invite everybody to check out Dog Nation as well, the online blog with everything about the Georgia Bulldogs. Bill, thank you for the visit. Thank you very much. All right, a pleasure. Bill King, our guest, talking about Sanford Stadium, and it looks like some improvements headed that way. Coming up now, stay tuned. We head to the classic venues of the Big Ten Conference, past and present. Joining us, former Illinois Sports Information Director Mike Pearson. He spins tales of Judd Heathcote, Scott Skiles, and Steve Alford, among others. That's next on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. This is the time of year when all of that basketball action is for real. It's conference play, and I don't think you'll find anything more exciting year after year, year in and year out, than you're going to find in the Big Ten. Some of the great basketball arenas in the country certainly are located there, and a guy who should know all about this is the former sports information director at the University of Illinois, Mike 
Pearson. He's also worked in sports information at Michigan State and Miami of Ohio. Mike's website is your one-stop shop for all Big Ten conference history. You can find it at sportsllll.com. Mike, you did a fantastic story here, which you wrote from personal experience in Wildcat Digest, and I suggest everybody check it out. You rate the Big Ten arenas. Before we get into some of those ratings, uh, what about your criteria and what were you looking for? What's a good arena, according to Mike Pearson? Well, I, I love to go to arena where the crowd is just on top of the action and in charge of, of the game. Uh, I, I want to see enthusiasm. I want to see uh, reaction. And uh, the Big Ten has lots of places like that. So let's start with Williams Arena. The barn is, is a really a special place. I, I love the old-timers. First of all, I used to work at Michigan State, as you mentioned, and, and uh, Jenison Fieldhouse is, is one of those old-timers, but the barn certainly is, is uh, right there with anybody else. You know, it has character. It, it, the seats are hard. There's no uh, chair seats in there. It's all benches, and everybody has an opportunity to yell and cheer. I remember one uh, year in 1986, uh, I was accompanying the Michigan State uh, team up to uh, uh, Minneapolis uh, for a game, and uh, we had a player named Scott Skiles. You remember, might remember that player for the Spartans. He could play. He was a first-team All-American. But on this particular night, he played, I thought, his greatest game ever. In 27 shots, he hit 20 of them. And the great majority of them were well beyond the three-point line. Problem was, there was no three-point line in those days. As I went back and calculated how many points he could have scored that night uh, had the three-point line been a reality, he would have scored 62 that night. Mm -hmm. He fouled out at the end of that game, and I'll never forget it. Uh, The uh, Gopher faithful stood up gave him a standing ovation. It's mm. the first and maybe the last time I've ever seen a an opponent player get a standing ovation in a visiting arena. Let's talk about uh, the arena where you rolled up your sleeves and worked regularly. And one of the interesting parts of your article is you got something of a hint about the work that's been done on it. That's the big building at Illinois. Architecturally, it's magnificent. It's a fantastic achievement, and it can hold a lot of fans. But I always thought that the fans weren't close enough in there. It's just a sensation I got they may have solved that with the rebuild mike you know the building a lot better than i do what were your impressions of it well the first time i ever walked into the building was uh i think in the early 70s at that point it was about 10 years old it took your breath away as to the enormity of that building and on the outside of course it looks like uh you know it looks like a spaceship Imagine what it looked uh, like to people in 1963 when when uh, it first opened. It still looks uh, futuristic, you know, 50-some years later. But you are exactly right. Until this recent renovation, the fans aren't on top of uh, the uh, court as they are in many other uh, Big Ten arenas. Still, there's a, there's a great deal of... Uh, 
of enthusiasm that's generated from Illini fans uh, when they're when their folks are on top. There are several new buildings, of course, in the league, or newer generation buildings. I would say the Breslin Arena at Michigan State, which replaced the old field house. And I did a game out of the old field house going way back to my college years, so I do remember that old place just as you do, Mike. And, uh, boy, it was but, something. But you, you probably remember, Bill, the uh, basket that went across the court at Jenison. I sure that, do. That, that's how we delivered statistics. So yep. the, the writers were on one side, the radio and TV were on the opposite side, and uh, it was such a long walk uh, to go uh, around the perimeter from one balcony to the other that Fred Stabley, the SID of long ago at Michigan State, designed this basket system where it was a cable strung over the court and you turned a bicycle wheel on the writer's side to get the basket back and forth, and we had a person on the other hand to uh, gather the statistics. I remember clearly one one night as the basket was going uh, across, the game was in progress, and the basket uh, went a little too fast, and the paper started flying out of the basket and floating down onto the court during the game. The game had to be stopped. At that point, we decided, you know what? We're only going to run the basket when uh, the game is not in session. And so uh, that was a funny memory for me. Now, you have gone to every building in the league, and that means you've seen the new building at Nebraska. And I found this interesting because it got a lot of good early reviews. How did you like it? I love it. I think, again, the people inside the arena uh, make the arena, but I think the configuration of the new place at Nebraska is terrific. Uh, We mentioned the uh, arenas around the league. The one that has the steepest incline that I can remember is the uh, Assembly Hall at uh, Indiana University. Mm -hmm. When you are climbing up those uh, steps, you feel uh, like you're going to fall over because it is uh, such an angle. So you you got one hand on the railing as you're going up. You rate that arena the highest. Why does Assembly Hall rank number one in your article? Well, again, I, I think the fans inside are the key to the buildings themselves, and Hoosier fans are absolutely crazy. Uh, you know, they love their basketball. I, I remember uh, some of the great times in there. I, I, I have a story uh, from Judd Heathcote. I used to travel with the Spartans during Judd's years. And uh, we were at Bloomington this particular game. And the Spartans were leading in the first half. And then Steve Alford went on a tear. And, and, and you know how he could shoot. He started hitting threes from every angle. And then the, the Hoosiers took charge and, and went on to beat the Spartans. After the game, a, a reporter asked uh, Judd, he said, Judd, would you change anything during that time when Steve Alford was hitting all those threes? Did you think about changing anything? He says, in his deadpan manner, he says, yeah, I thought about changing my pants. <laughs> That sounds like Judd Heathcote, all right. That's the guy we all remember. There's no doubt about that. Mike, it is a real pleasure to visit with you. And may I wish you well with sportsllll.com. Mike, all the best, and thanks for visiting with us.
Thanks for your time, Bill. It's a pleasure. Mike Pearson, the former sports information director at the University of Illinois, and this truly is a guy who has been around, and you'll see for yourself when you read this wonderful article about all the great Big Ten arenas. We'll be coming back with more of Stadiums USA. Mark Madoran standing by. We'll talk shop next on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Let's get after it. Time to talk shop once again as we examine this week's stadium headlines. For that, we turn to Mark Madoran, president of Stadiums USA. Mark, investors hoping to build a stadium in Oakland to keep the Raiders in town. You know, we haven't heard much from them. They have been a very quiet group. This week, we learned that Ronnie Lott's group has not only do they have a proposal per se, but they've submitted the proposal. What's the story on that? Well, the Ronnie Lott Group has been busy. They're formerly known as the Fortress Investment Group. They have submitted a plan to the NFL. The Oakland City Council and the Alameda County Board of Supervisors have actually been negotiating with the Ronnie Lott Group since mid-December. That's why it's been so quiet. The plan was approved by both city and county officials. Details of the plan aren't really public at this point, but we do know the stadium will be built on a joint site owned by the city and county of about 130 acres. The stadium's on the small side, only 55,000 seats. The cost is figured to be about $1.3 billion. Now, Mark Davis, the Raiders owner, has not been involved with the Fortress Group. He has not been involved with the discussions, and he's not talked with Ronnie Lott as far as we know. So the Raiders aren't included in developing the Oakland plan. The Raiders have formally applied for relocation to Las Vegas. They did that in January. They put together a stadium project that's financed in part by the state of Nevada. Um, The Las Vegas stadium would be a retractable roof facility with a price tag of about $1.9 billion. And the league will be voting this month on the Las Vegas relocation plan because it was formally submitted. And no matter what happens, either way, the Raiders will be playing the next two years in Oakland. Now, when we're speaking of a guy who's tied all of this together, money and everything else, you have to look at the Rams owner Stan Kroenke a few hundred miles south and Clippers owner Steve Ballmer as well. They both have a lot of cash. Very fascinating report out of L.A., which indicates that these two men got together recently to talk about the sports and entertainment complex that Kroenke is building in Englewood, and I wonder how we connect the dots on this one, Mark. 
Well, when those two guys to get together for lunch, actually, who picks up the check? Yeah. <laughs> or they tell the waitress, no, we need separate checks on it. Yeah, they go stag. <laughs> Either way, the Billionaires Club had a meeting, and what they're talking about is the possibility of building a basketball arena at Kroenke World. The Clippers have not been happy at the Staples Center. Their problem is their lease runs through 2024, so they're going to have to either buy out the lease or live with it until that lease is up. The um, time involved to construct and build an arena, though, probably in California, is a minimum of three to four years. So the Clippers aren't really starting too much in advance. Now, the Inglewood site that will host the Rams and Chargers is 298 acres, more than enough land to build an NBA-quality arena. The Clippers are also looking to build a training center. Their current training center is not owned by them. It's only leased. So they would like to include a training center with it. The Staples Center has not been the best venue for the Clippers. And the owner, Steve Ballmer, has said, look, we know we're the third team in there. And so we get the third choice of everything. The Staples Center is, as you know, is a really busy place. Oh, yeah. You got a lot of teams going in and out of there on a daily basis. The mayor of Inglewood, though, has said that adding an arena to the Inglewood site would probably put a stop to existing construction while they get the permitting and plans done. And he said that could add 18 months. And that's a real problem. The Rams and Chargers are on a deadline and they have to get that stadium finished. Also, the NFL doesn't want to see it delayed. There's supposed to be a Super Bowl played there. And they're not going to push that date back. Yeah, well, maybe they'll wait a little bit on it. After all, he has till 2024. After the stadium is complete, I would think uh, maybe things would move a little quicker. Since he does have uh, about six years in here to, to play with, I would think they could get that done. All right, Mark, let's roll back the clock here. Get in the Wayback Machine and check out some important dates in stadium history. And uh, there used to be... A ballpark where the field was warm and green. This week in 1940, Madison Square Garden in New York is the site for the first ever televised college basketball game. Did did you do that game, Bill? No, uh, no. I, I I was fighting in World War II. No, I missed okay. that one. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was not around for that one. Okay, uh, I thought it might have been your game. It was a doubleheader between... Fordham and Pitt, and then the second game was NYU and Georgetown. Mm -hmm. And probably not very many people saw the games on TV because in 1940, there were only 400 television sets in all of New York City. In 1949, baseball St. Louis Browns, who owned Sportsman Park, tried to evict their tenants, the rival Cardinals, in an attempt to increase the rent. The move was unsuccessful. Only a few years later, the Browns would move to Baltimore and become the Orioles. And the Cardinals would take over the St. Louis market and become extremely successful there. Yeah. Now, this week in 1959, the San Francisco Giants decided to rename their stadium Candlestick Park. The Giants played their first two seasons on the West Coast at a minor league stadium, Seals Stadium, which had been the home of their minor league affiliate, the San Francisco Seals. And here we go, Bill. Time for your favorite part of the show. Stadiums USA trivia. Here we go. Babe Ruth, have you heard of him? For some odd reason, yes. I've eaten a few of his candy bars. <laughs> okay. He played 22 seasons of Major League Baseball and set dozens of career records. Can you name the ballpark where he hit his 
last, his final MLB home run, the 714th of his career. All right. Was it Wrigley Field in Chicago, hmm. Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. Yankee Stadium in New York, or Fenway Park in Boston? All right. Fenway Park, of course, is where Ruth first played before going to New York. Ruth finished his career with the Chicago Cubs in the National League. But if it had been a home game, all of us would know that Wrigley Field was where he hit his final home run. And why we wouldn't know is because that stadium has probably been torn down where he did hit it, and that would fit Forbes Field to a T. So I'm saying it's Forbes Field in the National League. Well, you are correct. All right. uh, (laughs) You're on a winning streak. I know it. Yeah. Actually, um, Ruth was a member of the Boston Braves at the end of his career. Oh, okay. And he hit the home run as a member of the Braves at Forbes Field right before he hung him up. All right. Well, then that's the story. A, a little curveball even for me. But he he logged some of his great moments in Wrigley Field. The called shot, of course, is the one we probably all remember. Yes, that was as a member of the Yankees in the World Series. Uh, yeah. Well, wild. All right, Mark. Well, great. We will go ahead and see you next week. Have a good week, Bill. Take care. Okay, Mark, you too. Mark Madoran, we talk shop. We take a trip back next now to the iconic polo grounds in New York. The author, Stu Thornley, joins us. It's coming up next on SB Nation Radio. The number 258 has a significant history in professional baseball, and it refers to the polo grounds, the right field line. If you hit a ball down the line in right field, all you needed was to hit it actually 259 feet to get it out. It was an unusual ballpark and certainly evokes tremendous memories for many baseball fans. We're going to visit with Stu Thornley, who's written a book on the polo grounds. Stu, this is a wonderful book, Land of the Giants, and indeed it was. Share with us some memories about this place and what you learned as you researched uh, this very unusual ballpark. Well, one of my regrets in life is that I was too young to have gotten there. And uh, I always say when I finally get my time machine, I'm going back. I I was fascinated by it initially, and this was in the 60s. I started following baseball and seeing the diagram of of all the different stadiums back in the day where you could just look at a diagram of a stadium Mm -hmm. and say that's Fenway Park or that's Crosley Field or Wrigley Field. And then seeing the one for the polo grounds, and I think by this time it was maybe a year or so past the time that the polo grounds existed. And I just couldn't even envision what a ballpark like that looked like. It such short distances, 279 to left field, 258 to right. And then unlike most ballparks where you might have the outfield fence intersect the foul line at a 90-degree angle, these went out at a 135-degree angle. So in other words, it fence went out real fast. If you didn't hit it down the line, then it was going to be a long poke. And then way out in center field, nearly 500 feet, there was a notch that went out and there were stairways that were in play that went up to the clubhouse. I started looking for pictures of it. It wasn't quite as easy in the mid sixties as it is now. There's a ton of pictures and I encourage anybody just to go on the internet and Google the images of the polo grounds. And you talk about that short distance down the foul line, one of the more famous games that really demonstrated 
the quirks of that ballpark was the first game of the 1954 World Series with a couple of runners aboard and one out. Vic Wirtz hits this tremendous drive more than 400 feet to center, the home run in many ballparks, but Willie Mays made the great catch on it. And then a couple of innings later, Dusty Rhodes, a pinch hit, and he put one right down the line at about 259 feet for a game-winning home run. So you talk about <laughs> how the park could give and how it could take away and, and the, just the weird dimensions of it. That that game really stands out of illustrating the unique nature of the polo grounds. As unusual as it was, it was quite large. They could seat well over 50,000 in there, somewhat unusual for its day. Once they built it all the way in, you had an upper deck that extended almost all the way around the place. Right, and it was a, a double deck all the way around, except where it then separated in straightaway center field, the notch they called it. There was a clubhouse and the offices, a large building that that was put right between these two sections of a grandstand, but the field itself took uh, took another turn out into that. That beyond the short distances down the line and the deep distance to center, that notch in center field was such a distinctive uh, figure. There, there are pictures out there too of outfielders having to track balls down as they rolled all the way, say to the clubhouse steps, and throw it back in long distance. It was measured. There were various measurements on the distance to straightaway center field from 475 to 580 or to 483 and beyond that. Um, nobody hit one into that notch far enough for it to be a home run on the fly. But uh, to either side of that notch uh, were, were bleachers and that had batter's eyes up on each side, so large panels to give the batters a better look. And I don't think anybody ever cleared those, but there are four players that are known to have reached those bleachers. Lou Brock, uh, Joe Adcock, Hank Aaron, and Luke Easter. Go back to the drive that Vic Wirtz hit in the first game of the 1954 World Series. It took Willie Mays almost to the warning track to flag that down. There, it was just a long out. The late Jack Brickhouse, who was calling that World Series for NBC, described it as a play that had to look like, quote, something of an illusion. There's a long drive, way back in center field, way back, back, it is Supposedly, uh, a lot of the New York or the National League writers, or especially the New York writers, said, "Yeah, that was a really good catch." But they weren't as amazed as many other people were because they said, "We've been watching Willie for a few years now, and mm-hmm. we've almost become accustomed to that type of thing." But uh, that stood out. And then beyond the, the him catching it, it was the quick throw that he made back to the infield. You get a ball that deep, and especially when you're going away from the field. Uh, there was a chance that Larry Doby on second base could have tagged up and come all the way around. With the shape of this ballpark as it was, I would have to think that it was almost optimum for football. Was that the case? Yes, that was unusual, too, because, you know, the the whole trend of the stadiums, uh, baseball was king, college football was big, they generally had their own stadiums. Pro football was just, for the most part, being wedged into baseball stadiums and usually these were not good setups for football Uh, when the NFL became prominent enough in the 60s then the trend of new stadiums was for function 
the multi-purpose stadium, which was functional, but just ugly and not charming for baseball. But the polo grounds would be the one that, that at least when you put that gridiron right down, it really fit in. Well, Stu, it's an interesting story, uh, and certainly we suggest uh, that everybody look for the book, Land of the Giants. Stu, thank you so much for the visit. Appreciate it. A real pleasure, as always. Stu Thornley, our guest, he is the author of the book, Land of the Giants, the great story about the polo grounds in New York. That's our program for this week. Bill Hazen saying thanks for being with us. We have a full day of sports coverage coming your way on SB Nation Radio. 